0: Um, So Lucy's arrival got me thinking this week about fresh starts, and I was remembering the birth of my own firstborn son, Benjamin, 14 and a half years ago. So uh, as I was thinking about that fresh start in my life, I looked back at some of my old prayer journals, and I found the prayer that I was praying for my son on the morning of his birth. Um, I think you've heard, most of you have heard, heard the story before, but Benjamin was Uh, delivered under very stressful circumstances by an emergency C-section because Sarah had preeclampsia, So uh, we were rushed to hospital. Uh, We spent an anxious night uh, in hospital listening to the heartbeat all night long, just hoping it would keep going. And then uh, we had an emergency C-section scheduled for noon on the next day. So uh, in the morning, I woke up and I went to find the hospital chapel (coughs) to pray and... I want to read you exactly what I prayed for my son on the first day of his life. Uh, And this isn't to toot my own horn at all, um, but it's to share with you that feeling of a fresh start, and it's also uh, to give thanks for the goodness of God in the years since. So at the time I wrote this, um, we still hadn't named my son Benjamin, and so we were calling him Small Hall. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I wrote, Small Hall's birthday. A date that, Lord willing, we will mark and remember for the rest of our lives. Lord, thank you for this incredible day. Thank you for trusting us with this great task. Please prepare us now in body and soul for this new chapter. Father, we come to the last fleeting hours before we start messing up parenthood. (laughs) Failure is inevitable. Thank you that you do not love us based on merit. Please help us to extend grace to ourselves and to each other as you do. Lord, I lift up this new life to you as a sacrifice. He is yours, Lord. Please father him better than I ever could and lead him into green pastures. Father, please make small a man of noble character, a man who loves you with all his heart. Would his life be one of rich fruit and abundant blessing. Please raise up a man out from whom the light of your glory shines. Dear Lord, would small experience something of you in the way I father him? Please use small to prosper your kingdom more than Sarah or I ever will. I pray for his first hours of life. Comfort him as he is away from his mum. Please be very close to Sarah. Would she know your intimate love for her today? And then I turned in my reading plan to Isaiah chapter 32. And the words that came to me that day from that chapter were, the noble man makes noble plants, and by noble deeds he stands. So from this distance, I can now see, thanks be to God, just how much of that prayer was answered, how much of it has already come true. Um, but as I was reading it back, I realized that the part that's most certainly true is that I began messing up parenthood on that very day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sarah and Benjamin can tell you how many mistakes I've made along the way and how constantly I've needed God's grace and forgiveness, as well as theirs. The reality of our indwelling sin means that to begin any project is to begin messing it up. As God's image bearers, the standard for all the work we do is perfection. And as sinners... Failure is inevitable. I was told that by an older friend when I first stepped into Christian leadership. Failure is inevitable. Those were his encouraging words to me. Um, But accepting that as a pure statement of fact over my life has been incredibly liberating because it means that our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in God's grace. He alone is able to make us stand. So I wanted to start that way as we continue our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. looking at chapter 10 today because this chapter has a really strong sense of a fresh start. Um, So you can open up now to um, Nehemiah 10. It's page 406 of the uh, church Bibles. And in this chapter, the exiles have returned to the land. They've rebuilt Jerusalem, both the temple and the walls. And here in verse 29 of chapter 10, They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. So this is a fresh start for the children of Abraham. It's a complete do-over. And I want to notice first that they set off in a very different direction from the one they were walking in before, and it's a much better direction. So there has first been real and lasting change in these people. But second, I want to notice that the new direction is not entirely without its own problems. There are some mistakes right off the bat, and we're going to explore those later on. But first, let's celebrate the progress that's been made by these ancient saints in Nehemiah 10. As we remember the book of Nehemiah, we remember that up to this point, they've been prayerful. They've been obedient to God and responsive to their leaders. They've been brave in the face of fierce opposition. They've worked very hard. They've sought after God and they've shown stamina for hearing and obeying his word. They've taken care of their own poor. And they've joined together in the most passionate and beautiful repentance. That's what we've seen them doing in the first nine chapters. And all of this is so much better than the example that was been set by God's people in the books of Judges and Kings. So these people here in Nehemiah seem determined to learn from their past mistakes. I want to really zoom in on the middle of the chapter, verses 28 through 31. Um, And we're going to really spend all our time in the the passage in these verses in the middle. And I want to notice in uh, in these verses that there are five parts of the oath that they make that are now in direct obedience to God's law and in direct contrast to what the people were doing before the exile. So let's start with the one that's in verse 28, Um, and it describes the people in verse 28 as those who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Now, I don't know if that means very much to you, um, but this idea of separateness is incredibly important in the law of God. So uh, it comes straight out of God's law in Leviticus chapter 20. Now, we're going to look at this carefully. So if if you're a visual person, you might want to turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 20 and see this for yourself. Keep your finger in Nehemiah 10, but look back at Leviticus 20. It's page 99 of the Bibles. Um, And look at Leviticus 20, verse 22. God said, I'll give you a little bit of time to find it. Okay, a lot of you good. Uh, God said, Leviticus 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast, or by bird, or by anything with which the ground crawls which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. It's such an important passage. It's such an important idea in the Old Testament. And Peter repeats it in the New Testament saying, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Um, it's It's a word that's directly repeated to the New Testament church. But listen to all the ideas that Leviticus 20 joins together. It says that belonging to God means being separate from the nations. Belonging to God means being holy to God, being set apart for the Lord. And this really is what we mean by a saint. It's someone who's sanctified or set apart for God. So in Nehemiah 10, this word separated is very, very important. Now, if we think about Leviticus 20, it, it says that in their case, the alternative, in the Old Testament situation, the alternative to being holy and separate to God is that they're going to lose the land altogether. The land will vomit you out. And that, of course, is exactly what had just happened in the exile. The people had not been holy or separate, and the land had vomited them out. So now they were back in the land again, and Leviticus 20 was ringing in their ears, and they were determined to be separate from the nations this time and holy to the Lord their God. So that was their first commitment, and it was such an important one. All right, come back to Nehemiah 10. Hopefully you kept a finger in it. And look at verse 30, which is where we find their second commitment. The people said, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And this comes straight from Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. If you're taking notes, or if you want to flip to it, that's page 152, Deuteronomy 7. So Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 says, "'You shall not intermarry with the nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly.'" All right, that's Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. So notice that the people in Nehemiah 10 are directly quoting from Deuteronomy when they make this command um, to not give our daughters uh, to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And again, this is something that the people before them, before the exile, were doing. They were intermarrying with the nations. And because of that, they fell prey to idolatry. And again, the consequence of that was exile. So we can see a direct correlation between what they're promising and the exile that's just happened back in Nehemiah. The third commitment is in verse 31. They say if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. And we don't need to turn to this one in the law because there are so many places that talk about the Sabbath in the law. One good example, if you're taking notes, is Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. You can look at how important the Sabbath was to the people of Israel. It turns out that Sabbath keeping was to God an essential mark of their belonging to him, of their separateness from the nations. In the law, breaking the Sabbath was punishable by death. So as this people sought to be holy, a recommitment to the Sabbath made all the sense in the world. But even more important was the fourth commitment they make in Nehemiah 10, which was to the sabbatical year. Verse 31 says, we will forego the crops of the seventh year. This one's from Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. The law said, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. That's Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. And I want you to notice that there was a purpose to this law of the Sabbath year. It was for the sake of the poor, for the benefit of the poor. But throughout the time of the kings, the people of Israel had neglected this law. And we know that because of what it says in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20. It says, Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. All <laughs> right? amazing this passage says that the very length of the exile to the year was determined by the number of sabbath years that had been lost by the people's former disobedience god had counted them he had stored them up and god would have things his own way he would have the sabbath year the way he wanted it and if the people would not keep the sabbath year by choice then they would keep them all at once in exile So, of course, this was now a vital change, of course, for the people in Nehemiah 10. If they're back in the land, they've got to now keep the Sabbath years. And finally, their fifth commitment is to the exaction of every debt. And this comes from Deuteronomy 15, page 158, if you want to look at it. Um, Deuteronomy 15 is still on the same subject as of the sabbatical year. And Deuteronomy 15, verse 1 says, At the end of every seven years... You shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. And once again, this was something that the people before the exile were not doing, but the people who returned were committed to. All right, so five things. We can see lots of things from these patterns of the way that they're using Scripture. We can see very profoundly, can't we, that they've changed They're different now. This is an entirely different people. This is a profound and heartfelt transformation. They have clearly understood God's law. They've read deeply in the five books of Moses. They're pulling from all over the Torah, and they found within the Torah the very most significant passages that related to the problem, that related to why they went into exile in the first place. And they're now swearing an oath together as one community to change those things, to fix those very problems. So as we look at these people, we have to see and we have to admit that people can change. They can really, really change. By the power of God's word and by the power of God's spirit, people can change radically and profoundly. Never give up hope that you or the people you love can change because these people did And this was indeed a fresh start, a brand new day for the children of Israel. Because think about it, from that day that we read about in Nehemiah 10 to this day, all these centuries later, the children of Abraham have never again neglected the Sabbath day or any of the holy days. They have never again tolerated idolatry. They've never failed to attend to God's law. The exile taught them a permanent and lasting lesson. So that's the good side of what we're seeing in Nehemiah chapter 10. And it really is good. But as I studied this passage and prayed about it and thought about it, I also found myself sensing more and more that there's kind of a hint of a dark side here too. Uh, A need to be a bit careful. The spirit in me was sounding a note of caution. And for a while it was a little hard to identify. Um, I read the passage over and over. And it wasn't really coming out of the second half of chapter 10. We're not going to look at that in any detail today, but just to say that the people make a bunch of other commitments to God that aren't directly related to the law of Moses. They promise to give money and time and materials to protecting the temple and its ministers. And it's new, it's innovative, but not in a bad way. It's, it's just practical and it seems uh, well motivated. But when you read through chapter 10, at the end of all these vows they make, there's, there's still something missing. And a commentator I read made that sense stronger. And he's actually a Jewish scholar, Robert Alter, and he wrote, this was, of course, the great moment of renewal after the rebuilding of the temple. But one may detect here evidence of Ezra's priestly agenda. It is certainly surprising that nothing of the ethical injunctions of the Torah and its calls for social justice appear in these promises. And I thought, Yes, Robert, it is surprising. Um, He was sensing a lack here, and so was I. There's certainly a lot to praise about this fresh start, but there's also something a bit misshapen about it, I thought, too, Um, because it's a little bit too preoccupied with separateness and the outward show of holiness and obedience without the internal priority of love for God and for our neighbor. In fact, the word love isn't mentioned one time in this chapter. And, surely, love is the heart of the law. And when you look at what the nations are doing in this chapter, the nations are only there as a bad example to be avoided, instead of the needy recipients of the overflow of Abraham's blessings, which is what God has intended from the beginning. So, while these promises are good as far as they go, there's something a little bit ingrown about them, too. And as I was thinking about that, I started to hear Jesus' words in my head saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean." Now, it's certainly unfair for me to say that the people in Nehemiah 10 were being Pharisees. But as you look through the commitments they make, there's nothing here in chapter 10 that a Pharisee wouldn't say a hearty amen to. And what they prioritize is bent out of shape in the same way as the Pharisees were. So Nehemiah's people promised holiness without once mentioning love. And 400 years later, the Pharisees were practicing holiness without love. And in both cases, there's a sense here that God's forgiveness is in the past. It's something that we've needed before. Uh, Thanks, God, for forgiving us. But we're good now. We've got it from here. We're going to make commitments and we're going to do it right now. We can keep the law on our own now. By our own vows and commitments, we fix the problem. Instead of having this felt need for the ongoing grace of God every day. And once again, that's just like a Pharisee. Thank you for forgiveness in the past. I've got it from here. And I guess Taylor said it best when he said at our prayer meeting on Wednesday that this is missing the Messiah. (laughs) So here in Nehemiah 10, we're so close to the end of the Old Testament story Chronologically, the story's all over, except for three short prophets. The epic story that began with Abraham is going to end on this hollow note, on this unsatisfying note. We're not there yet. It still needs something more. The best we've got after the whole Old Testament without a savior is, is Pharisaism. We still haven't learned the most excellent way of love. So as we study Nehemiah 10, I really wanted us to also hear 1 Corinthians 13 this morning to round out our picture of what following God looks like. Because Paul wrote in the words that we all love so much, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So if it were true that all the vows in Nehemiah 10 were made without love, and as good as they are, they're nothing. Because love is the heart of the law. And Paul discovered that the main thing the Lord did was to teach people how bankrupt we are in ourselves. How impossible it is for us to fix ourselves or save ourselves or fix our own problems. And instead we need a savior. Jesus, our Messiah, has come to rescue us from Pharisaism by teaching us, the much more excellent way of love. He himself was pure love. He came down from heaven out of mercy for our pitiable state. He didn't sequester himself to safeguard his own holiness. He brought that holiness right down into the midst of our filth that his touch might make the unclean clean. And he wasn't obsessed with how the temple was organized. He walked into the temple to be the lamb, to take the role of sacrificial lamb, to make a sacrifice of purest love and take away the sins of the world, to show us the overwhelming love of God and also to pour that same love into our own hearts. So as I came to the end of Nehemiah 10, I just, I just felt like the message of this chapter is the same as every chapter in the Bible, which is that we need a saviour then nothing else is going to do it. No amount of obedience or law-keeping is going to do it. Any number of fresh starts. And praise the Lord that we get as many fresh starts as we want or need in this life. But the standard that he's calling for is perfect love. And we're going to fail. Failure is inevitable without the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit. So in ourselves, to begin any project is to begin messing it up. But thanks be to God that he does not love us based on merit. We rely on his grace continually every single day. So on this All Saints Day, as we do also seek to set ourselves apart for the word of God, as saints of God, let it be first and foremost his word of love. To receive God's love, to love him in return, and to extend his grace to ourselves, and to each other every single day. Amen.